Hey Rebels, welcome to another edition of Rebel Parenting. I'm your host, Ryan Dobson. I hope you're having a great week. I'm excited about our program. I'm going to tell you about it in just a second, but I want to know, are you watching us on Facebook Live every Monday and Friday, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 Eastern, facebook.com slash Dobson. It is getting bigger and bigger and bigger every week. I love talking to you. I love answering questions, talking about current events, all the things that are going on in our lives. So join us every Monday and Friday, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 Eastern on Facebook, facebook.com slash Dobson. Today we've got Dan Miller on. Dan Miller is the host of the podcast, 48 Days to the Work You Love. It is the number one career podcast on iTunes. You can find him online at Twitter at 48DaysTeam. Dan's coming on this time to talk about parenting. He is such an interesting parent. I'm friends with his son, Kevin. Kevin is the host of the Ziggler Show podcast. It is a fascinating podcast. You all know I love Zig Ziggler. I am a huge fan, so I can't wait to have Kevin on as well. Dan Miller's on talking about his parenting techniques. It was so fascinating. I'm so glad we have him on, and you're going to love this podcast. So here is Dan Miller on today's edition of Rebel Parenting. Dan, thanks for being on the program with us today and taking time out of your schedule. We really do appreciate it. Uh, thanks. I'm honored to be your guest today, Ryan. Dan, you and I met at a conference you do with Ken Davis called the Launch Conference. And it is for people like I was. I did it um, this past April. People in a mid-career transition. I had just quit my job. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And... Um, I was so impressed with that launch conference, with the speakers that were there, with the information. And I got your book, 48 Days to the Work You Love. And I thought, you know, this would be a great program to have on the podcast. And then I was watching a video of you with Dave Ramsey. And you mentioned this. And I said, this is a good theme for a program. You said 70 to 80% of Americans would change jobs if they thought they could. And I thought, that's crazy. That is so many people. That's such a huge percentage of the population that are unhappy with the work that they're doing. And I thought, what's the repercussions? What's the ripple effect of that? And then I just looked at my own life. I quit my job uh, a year ago in January, and I was frustrated. I love working with my dad. I love the work we were doing. The work itself was fun, but the atmosphere that I was in was frustrating. I came home frustrated, and it just wasn't worth it anymore. What are you finding out there? Are people really that unhappy with their work? How did so many people end up in jobs they don't want? Well, that's a great question, and you're right. It is ridiculous to have, especially here in America, you know, the greatest land of opportunity around every quarter and yet there are that many people unhappy in their work. The reason is we look for external solutions too quickly. You know, well, gee, I hear that computer programming is hot. I'll major in that in college, you know, and get a degree in that. Or they're hiring down the street. Or my Uncle Harry works over here and they need somebody. So we look for external solutions. 85% of the process of having the confidence of proper direction in our career comes from looking inward. So we got to take that deep breath. It almost seems counterintuitive, but we got to stop, draw a line in the sand, but look inward first. We can really figure out, you know, how has God gifted us in terms of skills and abilities? What are, about our personality tendencies? How do we relate to other people? What kind of environments are we most comfortable in? And then the third area being, what are your values, dreams, and passions? When you get clear on those things, you can develop a real clear focus for what work ought to look like to embrace those Mm. things that you now know about yourself. 
then and only then is it appropriate to look for what work would bring those all together. In essence, Ryan, what we're, what we're looking for is how can you find work that complements the life you want to live rather than the other way around. I mean, we hear people moving across country to a town they hate because they got a job. And that's just ludicrous to do that. What you do is decide what kind of life you want to live. There's plenty of opportunity for work that embraces that. So, Dan, is that available for... I'm going to ask a different question. How do you start that process then? You know, I mean, it's it's either... You know, there's one type of person that's sitting in their job and like, I hate my job. I just hate my job. I, I take it out of my family and I can't take it anymore and I got to do something different. That person's got a bit of a safety net going on. They can, they can go through this book. They can look internally, you know, talk about their identity and look for work that way. There's the other person that just got fired and they find out they've got two weeks and then that's it. And that, that panic sets in and you know, over the last, you know, eight, nine years, when I first moved to Colorado, I was um, out of, I wasn't, I didn't have a steady job. I was just speaking. Uh, and if I spoke, I got money. And if I didn't, I didn't. I didn't have a regular nine to five job. And then I worked with my dad for seven years and then I quit in January. So I've met a lot of people that all of a sudden find themselves out of work in that moment when all you can think about is, how do I feed my kids? How do I keep them in diapers? How do I make the mortgage payment? How do I make the car payment? And all you start seeing is, oh my goodness, I've just racked up all this debt. What am I going to do? How in that moment do you internalize and try to find fulfilling work and not just fill that gap? Sometimes it requires a two-step process. Mm. There are people who have been highly paid CEOs or entrepreneurs where things came crashing down. And my recommendation is let's go to Home Depot and get you a job. Let's get you a job, you know, make it 15 bucks an hour, but at least you've got something, you know, there's going to be a paycheck. Mm. For one thing, when we aren't productive, there's a negative cycle that can start to take place really quickly. All of a sudden, gee, you know, no finance is coming in. So the first thing that there is, is relationship pressure. And so then there's a cascading of self-esteem, low self-esteem. So on Monday morning, instead of being out there hitting the streets and talking to people and networking, gee, that's a little intimidating. I'm just going to sit here, you know, and eat Pringles on the couch and watch Seinfeld reruns for a couple hours, and all of a sudden the day goes by. Sure. So that we start to de- deteriorate, you know, financially, emotionally, relationally, physically. Well, even if you're helping that's out around the, the cycle house. you have to break. Yeah, I mean, let's say the husband's yeah. at home and he's, you know, making dinner and fixing things around the house and keeping it clean and doing all those things. Things are getting done, but work isn't being looked for. And it's almost an escapism, like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting stuff done, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. And there's still something missing there, too. I like that. I like that stopgap. It's okay. So you're saying it's, I think some people look at 48 Days to the Work You Love and think, well, I can't take a job unless it's quote unquote perfect. And you're saying, hey, oh man, my. if you need to you know, pay the bills, no. pay the bills while doing the internal work. But then that's the first step. Mm. Don't then just unconnect and say, well, you know, this isn't great, but it'll get me by. No, continue the process of defining what would that ideal dream job or business be? Continue making deposits and moving toward that. Yeah. So you put yourself in the, in the driver's seat and take yourself out of that position of vulnerability 
where you unexpectedly get a pink slip and then you're you're sunk. Right. You should never be in that position. You yeah. should know so clearly what your marketable skills are that you're able to move ahead regardless. But, it, but for somebody to just settle for a job that they really dislike, mm-hmm. I mean, that just is not a good plan. There's too many compromises with that. And the one thing where we spend the most time in our lives, that'll suck the energy out of you and start to deteriorate other areas of your life every time. That's right. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, health-wise, emotional, spiritual, all those things, definitely. If you're in a job you don't like, it's it's funny. I, I speak at a camp in the summertime for uh, older age high school kids. And it's a very type A, high functioner, high producer type of environment. And I'll say, how many of you guys raise your hands are going to go to college? Well, it's everybody raises their hand. There's 180 kids there. They all raise their hand. And I say, why are you going to go to college? And they all say, to get a good job. And I go, what does it mean to get a good job? And not everybody, but most kids reflexively say, make a lot of money. And I say, stop. And I go, what if you hate your job, but you make a lot of money? What if you make a million bucks a year and you hate every second of your job? Is it worth it? And it gets real quiet. Because that's what the American dream really has sold us. I mean, it's not what the American dream is, but that's what we think. Well, we need to get a job to make a lot of money, and that's the end all. Well, what do you do with that? And talk about how work you love is so much more than what you do and why money isn't necessarily the most important aspect of a job. Because really, I think most people, the most important thing they think about when they think of a job is how much they're going to make, and then everything else falls below that. Is that, a, is that the right way to look at a job? No, it's, it's certainly not. I've seen so many examples that confirm money ultimately is not enough compensation for investing their time and energy. Mm. I mean, I've been a life coach for many years, and I've worked with dentists, physicians, attorneys, who are making four or five hundred thousand dollars a year and they hate the life that they've created. Happens all the time. There has to be three legs to the stool. And those three legs are passion, talent, and money. It's not enough to have two. So a lot of people have identified something where they have developed the talent to do that. You could take a dentist who's developed the talent to do that. And the money is great, but if there's no passion, it'll eat them up from the inside out. I worked with a dentist a couple of years ago, Brian, who was uh, 47 years old, was making about $400,000 a year. Everything from the outside looked beautiful in terms of the life that he had. Well, when talking to him, but he, but he was on heavy medication for depression. Oh, yeah. And came to me, said, something's not right. And he came to me, and we started unpacking his life. And one of the things that he shared is that he had an ultralight plane. Now, an ultralight you know, is essentially a go-kart with wings. But I thought, oh, man, that's got to be really cool to be up, you know, over your house, over the town. Boom, just to be up there, that's got to be a great experience. He says, Dan, I know nothing about airplanes. I hate heights. But he said, one of these days, that plane's going to go down. If I put a gun to my head, that would be messy and an embarrassment to my family. No. But if that plane goes down, it's a socially acceptable way to check out of this miserable life. Come on. The only reason he had that, the only reason he had that plane was because it was his suicide plan. As soon as we started getting him healthy, sold the plane, no interest in that at all. Wow. That's an example. That's what happens when somebody has talent and money, but no passion. Yeah. It's not enough. 
mine wasn't that, but that's what I was experiencing. I really, you know, I started experiencing burnout because I made great money and I got to use my talents, but there was, there was a missing passion. And I think people forget that they need to feel fulfilled by what they're doing. They need to have an investment, an emotional investment, you know, so they wake up and they think, Oh, today I'm going to do this. You know, is, is that, Oh, absolutely. But is that available for every job, Dan? You know, I think about, uh, when I first got to college, I went to Olivet Nazarene University in Kankakee, Illinois. My parents said, you got to get a job. And I said, okay, I got a job. So I went to the, the job board and I checked the box on one of the jobs and I was a janitor. I'd been a janitor before and I was a janitor again. I cleaned toilets and I picked staples out of carpet and I cleaned classrooms. That's what I did. That was not a fulfilling job. It did not excite me. I did not uh, wake up thinking about new and better ways to clean toilets or how to magnetize carpet <laughs> staples to get a carpet. You know, some jobs, they just kind of stink. Can can everybody find fulfillment in there? I mean, if that's the jo- the only job I can get, can I be fulfilled in that job that way? How do how do you do jobs? I just you know it that that job made me made me money. It got my parents off my back. It gave me a little extra spending money. You know that kind of thing, but it was not an enjoyable job. Well, here's here's the deal. This is a very individualized process. Mm-hmm. You have described clearly that that was not a fit for you because there was no passion involved there. But I'll guarantee you, we could find somebody else that would absolutely love doing what you just described. I was on a, a radio um, call not that long ago, and it was out of Chicago. It was after Moody Midday Connection, and had a caller, and he described his work. He repair, worked for one of the utility companies. He repairs broken pipes in people's homes pretty much all year long. That's what he does. Mm. I can't imagine anything more miserable than crawling around under a house in sub-freezing weather working on water that's leaking in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, he absolutely loves his job. He said every day he's a hero. People love him because they have a problem. He can fix it. Wow. And they Think love about what that. Does. What an amazing perspective. He is the savior. Absolutely. They've got a leak. It's flooding their house. It's causing damage. And he comes in and fixes it. And he gets to be a hero every single day. That's right. Wow. So when people people challenge me, Dan, it's unrealistic for everybody to love their work. If everybody loved their work, we wouldn't have people that fix frozen pipes. We wouldn't have people that pick up garbage. Yes, we would. Yeah. There are people where those jobs are a great fit for them. There's really nothing you describe where somebody, I mean, if you go to a, a hockey game here in Tennessee, you know, big deal, hockey pre- predators are playing and there's a break and somebody can be rushing out there and they wipe down the plexiglass with all the saliva and spit and blood that's on there. <laughs> there are people that would give their right arm to have that that's job. Right. Not that's me. exactly right. Man, no. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> there are people who, who absolutely love the connection with the sport, the game, being out in front with people and all that. So, no, I, I'm totally committed to my belief that everybody can find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. I like that. I like that. You know, you talk about something in the book, 48 Days to the Work You Love, and it's the internal conflict of divine discontentment. I love that phrase. That is a great turn of words as a writer, as a speaker. I like that. But what is the internal conflict of divine discontentment? It's that subtle sense that this is not Right. I am not on 
the right path. And as a career and life coach, I have people who approach me who are doing very well by all appearances. Mm. And this includes pastors who come to me and say, you know, everybody thinks that this is the center of God's will. There's something missing. I don't think I'm on the right path. This is a very individualized process, but that sense of divine discontent, just the sense getting up in the morning and thinking, man, I really don't want to have to go do this again. Even though people respect me and pay me well for it, it just doesn't really thrill me at all. And there's that sense that God has something better for me. Mm. That's why even in the last couple of years, Ryan, there have been thousands and thousands of people that have lost their jobs. Yeah. You know, even you know, it just it just happens. Good, reliable, dependable, godly people lose their jobs every day. Mm-hmm. It's just part of the workplace that we live in. For a lot of them, it was a wake up call. In as much as the initial knee jerk reaction is, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to have to turn back in the car. We're going to go on vacation this right. year. We're going to have to give up our our extra home. You know, all those things. They think less immediately, but in retrospect, a lot of those people are saying man, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. It forced me to take a fresh look, and I realized I was an imposter. I was trying to live somebody else's dream, yep. and this allowed me to get connected with the things that were really important to me, mm-hmm. the things that I enjoyed when I was 18 years old. And now I'm doing something that pulled me on a path, not only that is a lot more fulfilling, but also that's more profitable. I yeah. hear those stories every day of the week. Yep, and you know, Dan, that's why I wanted to have you on, because that's my story. You know, as much as I loved working with my dad, that part of it was so much fun. He understands me like nobody else does. He's my dad. I mean, come on. How can he not understand me? I understand him. We love the same things. Everything else about the job bothered me. It just wasn't right. And on the outside, I had people be like, Ryan, you're crazy. You're crazy. I wonder if people in that scenario, Dan, feel in a way more stuck. I mean, I can imagine there's husbands out there listening right now thinking, that's me. I just, I dread going to my job every day. My wife has no idea that I just don't want to go anymore and it drives me crazy and I'm just stuffing it down on the inside. Is there hope, Dan? I mean, the people that feel that way, I mean, there's, you're saying right now, 70 to 80% of Americans would change their jobs if they could. I've got to say, most people listening today, most spouses who are at home, could be a husband, could be a wife, your spouse who's at work probably doesn't like their job. That's a big deal. <laughs> they don't like their job. They go anyway. You know, they go anyway. They got to pay the bills. They know the reality of the situation in life. They go anyway, but they don't like their job. What would it do to our culture to have people in careers where they enjoyed getting up every day? What would our world look like if we were to take that step and to find passion in our jobs every day? I mean, that seems like it would be a kind of a, a cultural shift. Well, it would. The pharmaceutical companies would go out of business in yeah, right. because we wouldn't need all the medication to blunt mm-hmm. the things that we're feeling. What you've described, Ryan, is the old adage, good is the enemy of the best. If things are just okay, people tolerate that for years. I had a guy recently that I saw who described he had lost his job. He was in an interim period, and a friend at the bank offered him a position at the bank. Now, he knew it would just be temporary, you know, but he needed two or three months to really clarify what he wanted to do. Sure. That was 14 years ago. 14 years he's been in that same position because he just got comfortable enough that he didn't take the initiative 
to really figure things out. Yeah. A lot of people are stuck in that. They haven't taken the time to look inward. And what happens too, I mean, you know how it goes, just like you described, you get out of college, mom and dad say, hey, you got student loan debt, you need to get a job. Yep. Boom, get out there, get a job, and all of a sudden, then there's a mortgage payment, you know, the kid's coming along, mm-hmm. and life just happens, and we just get trapped, seemingly so. Although, that's not something that I take lightly either, because nobody is trapped. We have choices, so many choices. Healthy people and we have can choices. Take the initiative. Oh, we can take the initiative to break that cycle and move into something more fulfilling. And this is not the thing, too. I mean, I know that you, a lot of your listeners, have deep faith. And this is not being selfish. This is not being materialistic. This is releasing the very best that God has in us. Mm. If we go to work every day, we don't like what we're doing. There is no way in the world we can be salt and light to the world. We can't be somebody who's attractive and appealing because there's going to be an absence of that joy Mm. and victory in our own lives. Mm -hmm. It's only by defining what it is that really makes us come alive that we can be the best, that we can fulfill our calling in any sense of the word. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. I when I was at launch conference, I just every time, and I know everyone else there. I got to talk to so many people there. We all feel like you're speaking directly to us, and now I feel like you're speaking again directly to me. You know, being here, being on the broadcast, being on the radio, having a podcast, doing ministry with my wife, having Rebel Parenting, having people write in. I mean, yeah, we're not making a living doing this right now. This is a donor-supported ministry, and, uh, you know, it's it's brand new. And I just feel so fulfilled. I wake up every day, and I'm excited. And we're uh-huh. able to input into other people's lives more, and we're getting along with our kids better, and our Bible study better, and our parents better. And it's just life is so much better, even though the thing that always seemed most important is the least stable, and that's how we actually pay our bills. You know, I'm paying our bills in many creative and new ways right now, and that always seemed like the most important thing, and at this point in our lives, it's the least stable, and we're so much happier. I mean, we're just so much happier. Well, if you come home exhausted, emotionally Mm -hmm. wrung out, your creativity is going to be in the gutter. But if, in fact, you're doing things that do energize you, creativity will perk up its ears and lead you into a whole lot of new opportunities. Mm. So you certainly describe a healthy path, doing something that you enjoy, even if it seems to others to be impractical or unrealistic. You know, how are you going to make any money doing that? I mean, I've worked with a lot of musicians and artists over the years. Well, we know what we tell artists. Gee, starving artists. Nobody's going to make money doing that. Are you kidding me? My gosh, I've got a, I've got a painting right here in my office, a beautiful, beautiful piece. And the young man who did that came to me as a pastor. It had a real dramatic change in his own life, and he thought the most godly thing he could do was be a pastor. Went to seminary, got ordained in his pastor of a little tiny Baptist church. Of course, they were paying him peanuts. And he was working as a night clerk at a hotel during the week just to try to keep the lights on in his house. And I'm like, who sold you this bill of goods? Yeah. And he was just aghast. He's like, what do you mean? I'm doing the most godly thing I could do. I said, no, you aren't. It's not a fit for you. You're trying to be something that you're not. Yeah. Let's figure out how God has really gifted you. I said, what do you do that really makes you come alive? 
what is it that puts you in the zone? I said, oh my gosh, I go into one of the little rooms in a rented house. I lock the doors and put on Beethoven and Mozart and I paint. I'm said, okay, let's explore that. I had him quit everything he was doing, including pastoring the church. For four years, he did full finishes where he did brushes, sponges, rags on people's walls, give it a dramatic effect. But that positioned him in that period of time to move into these beautiful paintings that he does now. Nothing but music-themed paintings. Mm. Well, the piece I have here in my office is a $10,000 piece that he gave me just out of appreciation after this transition. He's making 10 times the money he ever dreamed of making as a pastor. Mm. And here's the deal. Some people would look at that and say, well, gee, he walked away from his calling. No, he didn't. His calling was not to be a pastor. His calling was to help encourage people, yeah. lift them up, yeah. lead them to the Lord. He can do that way more effectively now mm-hmm. than he ever could before. He said before, you know, people knew what to expect because I'm a pastor. Right. They knew what I was going to say. He said, now I'm just the artist. So I'm in these people's gorgeous homes with their wealthy friends. He said, I have an opportunity to speak and minister to people in ways that I never did before. That's the power of authentic fit. And that doesn't fit me. I'm not an artist. But with him, even though it's in something where other people would see it as impractical or unrealistic, no. If that's really how God has gifted him, then let's do that with such excellence that it addresses all the other issues as well, including money. And believe me, it can do that. Oh, I agree 100%. Wholeheartedly agree. Dan, what an amazing program. We've got just a second left. Can you stick around? Can we do a little bit of a bonus episode and play that for people in midweek? Would that be okay? I'd be happy to. Awesome. I appreciate that. We're talking to Dan Miller, author of 48 Days to the Work You Love. For more information on Dan and Rebel Parenting, head to rebelparenting.org. Again, rebelparenting.org. Sign up for the newsletter for exclusive content from our guests, myself and Laura, every single week to sign up via your phone, text the word REBEL to 444-999. Text the word REBEL to 444-999 for that exclusive content. Dan, we appreciate you being here. Thanks for sticking around for the bonus episode. Everybody else, subscribe on iTunes or you're going to miss out and we will see you next week. All right, Dan, thank you. Okay, so... Yeah. Just one second. I'm going to save this, and i got a couple, few more questions I want to ask you. All right. Perfect. All right. Dan, thank you for sticking around and doing this bonus episode. I like doing this because it's a little bit more free form. You can just kind of answer any way you, you want. There's no restrictions of radio. Um. I'm curious, I'm always curious to find out why people write books, because as an author, um, I've only been talked into writing a book one time, and the truth is, I should have thought of it on my own, I just had to be, I had to look at something in a new way, but most people write books because they have to. With this one, this book is so practical, you've got so many exercises, things that really lead people through breakthroughs, but how did you come to write it? How did you come to have this you know, experience and this much knowledge that you can walk people through this process where 48 days and they can go, you know what? I really do know what I want to do. I really will be fulfilled in my next job. Yeah. 
Golly, great question. And there's an interesting backstory on that mm. because I never saw myself as a writer, as an author. I'm just a I'm business guy. I'm an entrepreneur from the top of my head and the tip of my toes. I love selling. So I'm just out here doing those kind of things. But my wife and I, after having come through a really horrendous business experience ourselves, agreed to teach Sunday school class at our church here in Nashville on career life planning. Just these helping people go through these inevitable career transitions that we all are confronted with. Well, that was just like a magnet. I mean, we found people coming from other churches just for the Sunday school class, and then going back to their own church for the sermon, you know, other states. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. So I moved to a Monday night, so we'd have more uninterrupted time, and I did that for eight years. So I was not writing books. I was teaching a Sunday school class, but I was walking with people through these transitions. And then people started asking for material. They're like, mm. wow, I've got a son-in-law that's been without work for four months. I want him to hear what you just talked to us about. What do you have that I could give him? I didn't have anything. So I ultimately put together, just in a rough format, my Sunday school notes in a three-ring binder, put a couple cassettes in there, started making it available. And we started making it available on online as well. And it was right. It was back when my buddy Dave Ramsey was just ramping up his radio show. <laughs> so we had a chance to really promote it a lot there. Then I went mm -hmm. to a conference in 2002, took Dave and Sharon Ramsey with us, Joanne, and I went to Los Angeles and he talked about how he sold chicken soup for the soul. You know, here's a guy that was rejected by 33 publishers, yeah. but then has done pretty, pretty well with that little book series okay. that he did. Well, I came back, and Dave and I both just started doing what he said to do. We thought, well, if we're going to have this material, let's at least be effective and good stewards of how we sell it. Yeah. Well, in the next two years, I sold over $2 million with that little three-ring binder. Three-ring binder that we were buying off the shelf at Office Depot, put my notes in there and a couple of cassettes. Well, at that point, then it got the attention of publishers. Oh, yeah. So B&H Publishing was one of those, the Baptist Publishing House right here in Nashville. Yeah. They approached me and said, we'd like to do a traditional trade book. So I just refined the material that I had, did a trade book in 2005, did an update in 2010, then did a major revision for the 10th anniversary edition that came out in 2015. Mm. But it, the material it was not why I went into a cubicle and just sat down and wrote a book. It's yeah. nothing but the real life stories of application mm -hmm. of things that allowed people to be successful. You know, it's and I think that's that why it really hit a nerve. Oh, it, it absolutely hit a nerve. It's interesting you tell that story because I, I've heard a very similar story from my dad. My dad uh -huh. wrote uh, Preparing for Adolescence in a very similar way. He had been thinking about my sister hitting the adolescent years and how would he approach that and what would he tell her. And he was leading a Bible study at church at the time. And he started doing the Bible studies on that topic and led his whole Bible study group through what he thought he would do with my sister at the time. And people started asking for it. So he then did exactly what you did. He gave people the cassette tapes from his Bible study and his Bible study notes. Well, that turned into preparing for adolescence and the series focused on the family did. And, you know, Family Talk still has that today. That was a, a huge project. Those were cassette tapes, three ring binders. 
you're talking to millennials today, you're talking to people like me, you know, in mid-career transitions, what are those things, what are the, what are the new ways people are using tools today? What are some of the ways, you know, people can say, well, I, I think this might be helpful. I was talking to, um, a guy that works on, uh, Porsches and there's, I don't know anything about Porsches except there is a specific problem that relates to virtually all Porsches and he had figured out a solution for it and was making a part. And he made a part and then he made a video for other people on how to do that and then he was selling it and he had a huge market for it because it's something that Porsche owners struggle with and he did a YouTube channel and you know just little it was a PDF and a YouTube thing and he's off to the races and running and he's looking at it now thinking oh I wonder if this could be a business I wonder if there are other things like this so when you're coaching people today what are the things that you're saying in relation to your experience cassette tapes three ring binders what are we using today right well we've certainly updated the technology I no longer have cassettes or even CDs available. Mm -hmm. Everything is online, but we have tons of content online. We have a a really robust 12 session seminar that walks people right through the 48 days material. And it's all online. I've done 48 videos that are part of that. But the cool thing is we aren't pressing DVDs anymore. So if I want to change one of those videos, I can change it tomorrow and the next day in everybody that has access to that course, you know, it changes. Man, I love the flexibility that we have mm. to keep things updated where they don't get stagnant anymore. How funny. I talked but to my dad about is, that when my first book came out. I just cringed uh-huh. when I got the first copy in my hand because I saw eight things that I would change immediately. <laughs> I remember I went to my dad and I go, how long was your first book published before you wanted to change it? And he goes, I wanted to change it the second I let the manuscript into the publisher's hands. And I was like, oh, it's not just me. Isn't that amazing now the flexibility where when you have a PDF or an online book or an online course or a source of videos, you literally have the flexibility to change it right now for tomorrow. You find new information going, oh, this, you have to know this. My business partner and I have something called, we have a thing called Startup in a Box. I keep getting asked by people, how do you do a podcast? Well, I now have all of those things. I can tell you how to start your own 501c3 and a broadcasting business because I've saved every single file I didn't have information for. I now have the information Mm -hmm. and I've kept it all in the same place. And I just, I've started giving it to people that want to learn how to do their own podcast, want to, you know, do those things. I I didn't even know I had that information to give to people, but I now have a new thing that there is a guy online called the podcast answer man. And I've been through some of his, his things and it's interesting. He's not updated it like I probably would have because the technology has changed pretty drastically since he did his files. And I think, you know, mine are a bit newer and maybe would use a little different technology. So it's nice to be flexible that way. Absolutely. Well, there's so many things that give us options to be current and up to date, but it's not always just about having online businesses. There are real businesses. Maybe somebody wants to start a landscaping business and they're reliable. They do what they say they're going to do and show up on time. I mean, you can be extremely successful. So we still have a lot of opportunity for the mm. bricks and mortar kind of businesses or just service businesses. Oh, yeah. People, it, it really is a fit for them. Isn't that interesting? Customer service. Successful. You're talking about customer service. Customer service in these days 
is really hit or miss. And what you're saying is if you can get people to show up consistently and do a good job, I mean, the world is your oyster. I've got a friend trying to get concrete concrete work done at his house. I promise, Dan, no lie. No lie. He's had four different contractors come out and give him bids. He's accepted all four bids and the guys Uh have never, they never show up. They don't even call. Never shoot up. They just don't. Isn't that amazing? He had two more people show up, and they just went, "Oh no, we don't want to do this." And he was like, "What do you mean?" He's yeah. Like, I, you know, there's so much work available that customer service is a thing of the past. It's just gone. So if you can show up, you can be friendly. You can look someone in the eye. You can shake their hand. You can give them a plan and a clear price, and not cheat them. My goodness, there's a lot of work for you out there. Oh, and that you can be washing cars or cleaning windows or mowing lawns. I mean, you take any industry with those characteristics superimposed, you can be at the top of the game overnight. Mm. Definitely. Dan, you know, you talk about how finding work you love is a lot more than what you do. You also say in your book, though, the world doesn't pay you for what you know, but for what you do. So the job isn't necessarily what you do, but that's what you get paid for. So how do you bring those two together? We put a lot of emphasis and importance on knowledge historically. Mm -hmm. When you think back a few years, Ryan, if I wanted to know the capital of Afghanistan, you know, I needed to find a library to go there and find a book and open it that would give me that information. Our whole university system is built on that. They had the knowledge. We need to pay them to get that knowledge. Now, look at how the world has changed. Mm. If I want to know the capital of Afghanistan, I whip out my cell phone. Three seconds, Siri tells me exactly what it is. We don't have knowledge does not carry the weight that it did. Do I look at these poor suckers on you know, who wants to be a millionaire, Jeopardy or whatever, and I think, why would you cloud your head memorizing that kind of trivia. It has no value at all in today's world. Mm -hmm. But what does is how you understand and apply that knowledge. So interviews with companies are no longer checking your resume, you know, where you went to school 10 years ago. It really doesn't matter. They want to know, how do you solve this problem? What if you had got up in the morning, it's totally dark, you open your sock drawer, you know you have 10 pair of blue socks, 10 pair of black socks, how many socks do you need to draw to make absolutely sure that you have a matched pair? And they ask questions like that, and people are thrown for a loop. They think, well, what does that have to do with the work I'm going to do? Mm. Well, they want to know how do you approach problems? How do you solve problems? How do you handle conflict? Those are the things that are going to make people have marketable skills, and more and more companies are doing behavioral interviewing where yeah. information just doesn't carry a lot of weight. Information is accessible for everybody. It's true. And I I wonder if that speaks to our school systems in a way, because it feels like a lot of public schooling is teaching kids. uh, They teach them how to take tests, not necessarily how to think. And that's why the job interview has largely changed. You know, it used to be, did you go to school? Because if you did, then you know how to think. If you went to school, you had this basic set of skills now it's so much social science in school and so much less about skills or thinking 
that you have to ask those questions. If I'm a parent today and I'm thinking, well, I want my kid to have a job. He needs to be a problem solver. What are the things we can do as parents? Are there activities or games or experiences to get our kids in that teaches them to be problem solvers? Wow, there are indeed. Incidentally, um, just recently I shared on my podcast about 10 major companies that have just removed having a college degree as part of their admission or application process. Companies like Ernst & Young, when we're talking about a major accounting firm, we would think, surely they put a high degree. Nope, they're saying they can't see any connection between having a degree and somebody that brings value to their company. I've wondered when this is going to happen. It had to. It had to at some point happen where you can get so much information on your own. Information is so ubiquitous. It's so available. It's so readily available from experts, TED Talks. I mean, great authors, great speakers, great orators of the past. So much information. College education, I don't know. You're signing up for a lot of debt there. You're signing up for a lot of debt. Maybe it might be smarter not to do that. Depends on what you want to do. So that's an interesting one. Mm. Absolutely. But certainly companies like Google, Microsoft, Yahoo, I mean, they're going to look at a resume and start at the bottom if we even look at it at all. And a lot of companies are not even requiring resumes anymore. They simply want to know, what have you done in the last six months? So they may look at a resume and see that you were part of a rock band and you, you know, got gigs to pay your way through college and see that as being more valuable than the fact that you've got a bachelor's degree in English lit. That's now, right. you ask a question, what can we mm-hmm. do with our kids? Well, I got a whole bunch of grandkids, <laughs> and they are, being, they are all being taught in very creative ways. My daughter, as an example, works for me. She's never worked for anybody else, 14 years since she graduated from the University of Tennessee. She works for me, but they live on the road. They live in a trailer. They're currently on Edisto Island down in uh, South Carolina and are going to move across during the winter months, Florida, across the bottom of the States, meet us in March in San Diego. They live on a trailer. They have three little girls. You ask my granddaughters, who's your teacher? Everyone. Where do you go to school? Everywhere. I just got an Instagram update from them a few minutes ago where they were in Virginia and they were part of banding owls where owls were no caught. Way. They were part of a team, caught the owls and banded them. Last year, they spent an entire month in Costa Rica. So when kids hear, you know, their understanding of a volcano is what they read in a book. Not my grandkids. Yeah. They'd call, crawled up and looked down into the mouth of the volcano. Mm. Tree frogs, they had their understanding of things and how things work is absolutely astounding. We can provide that as parents. It's not that complicated. We need to allow our kids to live life more than force them to sit in a seat and think they're learning that way. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Just a couple more, Dan. Give us the, the difference between vocation, career, and job. If we're out there, we're looking at a vocation, a career, or a job. Isn't that the same thing? Not the same thing. We tend to use those terms kind of interchangeably, but they're very, very different. Vocation is the big picture, and that would include like mission, purpose, destiny, calling, those big terms. You know, how do you want to make the world a better place? Mm. And as part of a vocation, it may be that I want to help reduce pain and suffering in the world. We'll use that as an example. Yeah. All right, so that's a vocation. That's a big. So then if we look at calling, it's a sub, I mean a career, it's a subset of that, subset of vocation. 
So if we use that as an example to help reduce pain and suffering in the world as a career, you could be a physician, a nurse, a massage therapist, sports trainer, and we could take it even to be, you know, pastor, teacher, missionary, help reduce pain and suffering in the world. So there are a lot of things that you could have as a career that would fully embrace that calling or vocation. Mm. Job then, in this scenario, is just the smallest component. I mean, if we say, okay, help reduce pain and suffering in the world, one way to do that as a nurse, I can be a nurse in Colorado Springs. Well, there are probably 3,000 positions that are nurses in Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. So job is the smallest component. But in framing it as such, it also takes the pressure off the job being everything of meaning in our life. If the job changes, it shouldn't change your vocation at all. You simply look for a new application. Even to the point, Ryan, when I work with pastors, and I've worked with lots of pastors who say, you know, get me out of this. Well, we go back and look at the roots of their calling. What does that really mean? And then we find another application that may never require them again to be in a pulpit on a Sunday. It's a fuller integration of their calling, but just a different application. Yeah. That's what we get by understanding vocation, career, and job. But what a lot of people do is start at the bottom. I need a job, mm -hmm. and they never take the time to really fully clarify, what is that vocation? What right. is my calling? What is my purpose? What would that look like? A lot of times people do that when they're going through a new season and often, you know, a later season in life. So at 60 years old, they start to ask that. I love seeing people who are 27 years old asking those questions. And more and more, they are doing that. They're asking those kind of big questions that I think used to get pushed back later in life. Sure, sure. Yeah, and it's important to ask those. And that leads me to this one, and then I've got two more. It'll be the final ones. But this is one of the ones when we're on the pod, when we're on the broadcast talking, and I talk to kids, and I talk to them about what does it mean to have a good job. So, what would you say is a better definition of success? You know, I think a lot of people think a successful job is one where you make a lot of money. But what would you say is a better picture of success? Yeah, it, it has to be where it really taps into talents and skills that you've developed, mm -hmm. passions that you have, dreams that you have for long term. Now, that may sound kind of grandiose, but it really isn't. I mean, somebody can be working at Burger King, you know, serving hamburgers and have those things be fully in place. Mm -hmm. We go through seasons in our lives, and that may serve a useful purpose at a particular season in life. And I certainly don't want to and make it seem like everybody needs to change. For a lot of people, this process of introspection looking would ought to confirm that they made some good decisions and they're where they really need to be. So it takes the pressure off thinking the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. I mean, we all have that a little bit in us, and we need to get rid of that. There's probably good reason for you having chosen what you've done. So for a lot of people, that's exactly what it is. I get asked to come into companies a lot, and you would think, well, if it's all a matter of you're, you know, you're not happy, get out of here. Companies wouldn't want me to come in. <laughs> but companies don't want people in positions where they don't like what they're doing. Sure. So they have me come in to help us see, can we make a lateral move or some kind of an adjustment mm. where it's a better match for somebody? And also even companies like General Motors, you know, have me come in because they see, well, there's multiple reasons. One is, People are taking early retirement, so they may have put in 30 years, another 53, and so they retire. Well, six months later, they're back knocking on the door saying, I'm bored out of my mind playing golf. What should I do? 
they want to introduce those people to what do you do in, in, in the next career? Yeah. And a lot of those people have done nothing but just get a paycheck. They've never really taken the time to look inward and figure this out. Mm. So, but, but work that is fulfilling, you know, ought to give you more, way more than a paycheck. Paycheck is a byproduct of doing something that you really think is providing value. Definitely. Yeah. That's, it's funny because it says that on my bio, if I could be doing anything, I'd be doing this. You know, ah, is, there you go. It's what I love doing. Definitely. Okay. Last Great one. Example. What, what book aside from your own, do you give out or recommend the most? There are, there are several. I love your question because I love, I, I wish it was mine, but it's one of my favorite questions. It's asked <laughs> Tim Ferriss asks this on his podcast and I, I, I love this yeah. question. So I can't wait for the people to answer it. So I've always wanted to ask yeah. all my friends this, so now I get to do it professionally. So I'm going to ask his too. <laughs> In terms of real basic value across the board, whether somebody is 15 or 55, I'm going to recommend Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm. It's the basic principles of developing good relationships, which really are at the basis of a meaningful life. It just opens the door to that. And a lot of people have not been exposed to that. So my, my grandkids, when they hit 13, that's required reading. Wow. How to win friends and influence people. And then do you quiz them on it? Yes, all the time. How cool. Absolutely. Awesome. I mean, firm handshake, looking in the eye, remember somebody's name, you know, knowing that uh, the ability to listen is a real gift. Yes, yeah. I certainly do. Absolutely. Yep. Definitely. Dev yeah, I think that handshake one, the other day I was down in a, in a town called La Junta, Colorado, near Rocky Ford. It's all ranchers. I was doing a little benefit there for a pregnancy resource center. Everybody there knew each other's names. Every man there had a giant belt buckle on. I shook a 10-year-old <laughs> I, I shook a 10-year-old child's hand, a 10-year-old. And I had to re-examine my life based on the feel of his hand versus the feel of my hand. I thought maybe I've done it wrong. I'm just not sure. He felt like more of a man at 10 with his handshake and hands than I did at 46. It's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. That's cool. Dan, thank you. This has been such a treat. I really do appreciate it. I'd love to have you back on again to talk about some of the skill sets we can develop and some of those things because the more we can get people fulfilled in the work they're doing, the better their home life is going to be. The better spouse they're going to be, the better parent they're going to be because they're being fulfilled outside the home and inside. So I really do appreciate you being here. Hey, absolutely. My pleasure. I love talking about these things with you. Hey, Rebels. Thanks for listening to Dan Miller. Find Dan Miller, follow him on Twitter at 48DaysTeam and subscribe to his podcast, 48 Days Online Radio Show. It is the number one career podcast online. He is a great guy to follow, so inspiring. He has so much wisdom. I really love this man. Also, find me every Monday and Friday, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 Eastern on Facebook, facebook.com slash Dobson. streaming Facebook Live, talking about current events, all the things that are going on. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate it. God bless. We'll see you next week.